Kia ora and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries, and other organizations. Ma mihi mote If 2020 has shown us anything, it's the value of having a good, solid approach to digital engagement if you're wanting to collaborate with your community. Today's guest is Matthew Crozier, somebody who understands digital engagement inside out. Way back in 2007, when the first Apple iPhone had just been released, was when a little Australian company was founded called Bang the Table, trying to make it easier for organisations to engage with their communities digitally. And the thinking behind it was to diversify the range of voices that can be heard around the decision-making table. So rather than the same old 100 people who put in their written submissions, actually if you could use online technologies, you might be able to reach you know, another 40, 50, 60, 70% of your community. So if your organization is thinking about investing in a community engagement platform, or maybe you've already got one but you don't feel like you're getting value from it, today's episode is for you. And if you don't even know what I mean by online or digital community engagement platform, you definitely want to keep listening. We start with the basics, some basics of good digital engagement. We look at the different stages that organizations can go through, how to embed digital engagement across your organization, the benefits of a digital first engagement approach, which could well throw out many of your assumptions about what good engagement looks like. And we unpack some of the common pitfalls, like how do you manage all the data that can come out of it? And how do you involve communities who are not digitally savvy? So that's kind of part one, if you will, of the conversation with Matthew. And then part two, a little bit more advanced or maybe just something for digital engagement nerds we talk about the potential future of digital engagement trying to shift away from really project-based engagement hey we've got this one particular thing that's happening let's have a conversation about it and trying to shift to more of a multi-dimensional approach to digital engagement which really means rethinking the whole engagement experience to give people a reason to return and a sense of ownership over it so Matthew wrote an article on that recently and I asked him to unpack that and share some of his most recent thoughts on that so there's a lot to get out of this episode if you're just dipping your toes into digital engagement or if you're an experienced practitioner as well. So please welcome to the show, Matthew Brochet. You founded Bang the Table back in 2007, which if my memory serves me correctly, was the same year the iPhone was first released. I was back at school then, and I'd love to hear what were the formative steps on your personal journey that led you to found Bang the Table? Sure. Well, I, I had a long career in government, I think about 15 years in the UK and then in Australia, in New South Wales. And Crispin, who I started the business with, we met working in the Department of Planning in New South Wales, doing a 20-year look at the future of the state. And 
you know, we met there. I left the government soon after and became a consultant and worked with a number of clients, but a lot of community-facing work. Crispin joined me and it was his idea, actually. He had a lot of foresight. He'd actually written a business plan back when he was studying, which frankly must have almost been in the 90s about getting online to engage communities. And he, I remember, dropped it on my desk in, in my office once and we kind of said, well, why not? You know, we were, we were looking for a new adventure. And so we went forward. We were lucky to find a few brave souls, both in New Zealand and Australia, who were prepared to give it a run and get us started. And it kind of built from there. But it was always about that frustration of engaging communities and talking to the same four or five people. My last government job in the Hunter, you know, literally the same five people turned up for every meeting. Mm. No matter how important the issue, you know, they were great five people. I don't want to denigrate them. They were the ones who turned up. But mm. there was definitely a sense that they weren't representative of the wider community. And then when as a consultant, I was representing businesses, you'd go out into the community and the people who turned up would turn up to protest and you'd leave the meeting, go to the restaurant afterwards and meet the people who thought what you were doing mm. was a good idea. And the clients would want to know why they hadn't been at the meeting. Mm. And the truth is people will turn out more motivated by fear and hatred than they will out of curiosity, you know, that sort of constructive enthusiasm. And mm. so Chris idea was, well, if we make it easier, we'll get more people involved. And that's proved to be true. We've no idea how many engagements we've done. You know, our clients now launch about 10,000 a year on our site around the world. We've definitely shown people how to get from that five people to a thousand or two thousand people get a lot more people involved and a lot more results. So we're feeling pretty good about that, but there's a lot of work still to do. Yeah. All the best businesses, right? Start from an idea where you've experienced the problem yourself. So with your background in public policy, where you've seen yeah, the same voices turning out. And there seems to be a hotbed in Australia of community engagement software services. There's you guys, Social Pinpoint Engagement Hub does, and The Hive, Consultation Manager, pretty much everyone that I find seems to be based in Australia. What's going on over there to make that such a, a common software to be developed? I like to think maybe we, we got in early and set a lead and demonstrated that there's a, a market and a need and where there are good ideas, others will follow. And I think it's a credit to all those businesses that Australia has been basically leading the way in this around the world. You know, when we got started, there was a company called Delib in the UK and a company called MindMixer in the US. MindMixer has since done a pivot into data and are still around. They're now called My Sidewalk and Delib are, are still plugging away in the UK. But you know, we, we got it started here and I think more than those others have been able to set a bit of a path for what we're trying to achieve and have laid the grounds for others to follow and particularly, you know, social pinpoints stand out in my mind. They really push the industry on mapping and since which we've all upped our game on that. And it's nice when these small companies come through and bring innovation and challenge you. If anything, I think the last few years kind of lament that there's there's been a lack of that you know social pinpoint definitely did that with mapping and to their great credit and they do it well but in amongst the competitive environment it feels like there's a number of companies that have kind of done much the same thing and i think in order to take our practice further and to get communities more engaged we need to find that innovation and that's something we're very much focused on as a business now is finding the next phase of innovation because we've been fortunate to expand our market to the us and canada and the uk to the extent that I, you know, I think Australia, New Zealand only accounts for it'd be less than a third of our company clients now. And, and that <laughs> like gives the most us this, important third. Yeah. 
Oh, absolutely, as long as you don't send this broadcast overseas. But it does allow us to have that robust base to then turn back and start scrutinizing the software and the product and investing much more strongly in that, mm. which we've started to do. So I'm hoping that you and I might be talking in a year's time about a wave of innovation coming through. For those of our listeners who are sitting there or they're on the way to work or whatever it is and they're wondering what is a community engagement platform, can you explain to them what it is? It comes from the premise of wanting to get everybody involved in good engagement. And so I always talk about it in terms of four elements, which, you know, sounds really boring. I'll be trying to be really quick on the four. The ability to share information in any format to make it attractive, video, photo, slideshows, whatever, so that people get information, because a large part of what government does is sharing information. And although we all get really excited on the participatory end of the scale, and, and when we get into collaboration and stuff like that, the truth is that government has a need to share data with the community. And that's become really difficult in the social media era, where it should have got e easier. Mm. And the reason it's got uh, more difficult is because there's fake information in there. And it's actually very easy using social media to target people with your fake information. So having a place where they can share the right information is an important component. Then lots of ways to get feedback from the community that make it hopefully fun and easy and encouraging to participate. We, we have a suite of between eight and 10 tools, depending on how the marketing team want to cut it up as what, what's a tool and what's not a tool. There's been a, a wonderful and utterly pointless battle on who's got the most tools. You know, there's a core. You need a suite of things. You don't want to be running a discussion forum when you're dealing with a, what are your ideas, a brainstorm where you don't want people criticizing ideas. You want to run an ideas tool. If you've got a spatial issue, you run a run a, a mapping tool. If you're just giving information, you want people to be able to ask questions. So it's about having the right suite of tools, enough tools that you can always have your conversation. And if you want a way to think about that, think about all the stuff you do in face-to-face engagement mm. you don't just say oh yeah we'll run a town hall every time actually within the town hall you use a whole variety of techniques mm. to get people's ideas depending on what stage you're at and what the project looks like so a platform needs all of those mm. so number one a way to share information and to be able to sort of set the foundation for your engagement and then number two was ways for people to interact and share their opinion mm -hmm. cool yeah, number, three. number three, ways to listen. We've all done those town hall meetings where, you know, someone exposes the note taker hasn't written anything down, or maybe not everyone's done those, I've done some. And those cases where somebody in the audience gets up and talks for half an hour and the moderator writes roads on the flip chart. Yes. That, that's the extent of it. So you, you need ways to record the information and then analyze the information. And that's an area that we're all getting better at. You know, we we're always quite good at building the data we measure in aware informed engaged cohorts because with online there's a huge opportunity to be able to see who's come and looked and chosen not to comment mm -hmm. which contextualizes if eight people comment and they're all angry but two thousand people have come and looked and chosen not to mm -hmm. that is a very different picture to eight people commenting and only eight people having looked you know so right. it's important to be able to contextualize and then to actually start analyzing the things that people say so we're starting to introduce artificial intelligence into the platform i predict you'll see a lot more of that in the industry in the future to make it easier and easier to draw down mass amounts of data into meaningful mm. insights and that's a lot of what it's about and then the final thing is about building community we have a thing called prm participant management participant relationship management and that's about being able to 
know who you're talking to, know that you're reaching a demographically representative sample, identifying the weak points in your sample and targeting them with, maybe with face-to-face -face engagement or direct outreach, and also being able to bring people back to talk to you again and mm. understanding a record of you know, what these people think about different issues. So you can actually become more and more knowledgeable and nuanced in the way you deal with a larger and larger audience. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, Matt. So that's a much more nuanced way of explaining it than I have, which is I usually say it's like a combination between your own website and social media. That's pretty good as well. That's probably <laughs> much less boring than mine. Yeah. <laughs> we can use a bit of both, I guess. So one of the challenges that I've seen for organizations, right, usually they'll get a website, step one on their digital engagement journey, and they just sort of say, well, you can now submit a form through our website to give us feedback. And then they might get onto social media and then they start to see some of the pitfalls that you've talked about, mm. the echo chamber effect. And, and then they make an investment in a tool like Bang the Table, a community engagement tool. But from there, things can go in one of two directions. They might test it out and only have eight people submit and they go, oh, well, that was a waste of time. Or, you know, others really invest in it and they stick with it and it becomes a really embedded part of how they do their work. Well, what do you think is it that separates those organizations that are really making the most of your sort of platform versus those that aren't? I think you've hit on the key to it. You've got to work at it. It's not a silver bullet. It's not, you know, oh, we put on a website, so job done. The clients that succeed the most, and most of them do in the end, you know, most of them stay around for, well, our average is seven and a half years. So once people are on the evidences, they keep going. But a lot of people have to work at it, particularly in that first year or so, as you build up that database of people to come back, you know, you want to get that into the thousands because you want to be talking to a large cross-section of the community. And there's a few things you need to do. One is get the word out about it. You know, so often people put the website there and think that people are going to randomly find it. You know, you can use SEO and things like that. But the truth is your community, find out what's there through your community. So you need to get the word out there. And the other thing is, about talking to people what they're, about what they're interested in. Often bureaucratic organizations retreat to safety and decide that they're going to start off their engagement life by talking about something really dull because it's not, it doesn't feel mm -hmm. risky. It doesn't feel like they're going to get a backlash or anything. Mm -hmm. And actually, most successful clients go out there with the hot button issues in their community. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get the community really active. And look, often for people, they'll start with something a bit drier and then they do a hot button one and they realize, wow, you know, the community came mm -hmm. in, they were passionate. It didn't actually hurt us as an organization. We mm -hmm. asked for that feedback. And so when it came, it wasn't painful. It was, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was respectful and useful. And then once people have done that once and they get it, they tend to get into the groove. And so a lot of what we do with people is trying to get them to make those issues very plain English, non-jargony, and the stuff that's meaningful to the community. I always give an example of a client that I won't name years and years and years ago when we kind of started this, probably about 12 or 13 years ago, who put up a uh, cultural strategy. And in the cultural strategy was all sorts of interesting stuff. I'm making stuff up now, but the hours of the library, the street art, all sorts of things that the community as an individual issue will get really passionate and interested and talk about. But they plonked this document in the library on the site and their questions they asked the community were, what are your comments on chapter one? What are your comments <laughs> on chapter two, et cetera? And of course, no one took any notice. You know, you've got to do a little bit of the work for the community. There were issues in that document that they could have pulled out and run some really 
really involved and valuable consultations. And I, I would argue that any issue government deals with, if you dig hard enough, the reason government's dealing with it is of interest to the community. It's just that sometimes the packaging is a bit boring. And if you, you strip that back, you can nearly always find a, an issue that the community will talk to you about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love what you're saying there about plain language. The Yeah, the situations where I've seen a platform like this work really well at the language. It's the aiming at the 12-year-old reading age and anyone can understand it. And yeah, I think that's really important. And one thing you talk a lot about, Matt, is the value of digital-first engagement. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about why you think that is so important? Yeah, sure. Digital first is a, a concept uh, and now head of product, Nathan, uh, came up with. And I think it's been really important because there's been this battle ever since we started between the advocates of face-to-face -face engagement and the advocates of online. And it's a completely false equation because, you know, of course, if we could reach thousands of people through face-to-face -face engagement, that would be wonderful. But we can't. We know we can't. We know that the only time you ever get a few hundred people coming to a meeting, they come with pitchforks wanting to sort of burn you. And and essentially, for good engagement to take place, there must be a digital element. Otherwise, you're only talking to a few people in the room. And so passionate are the people who run face-to-face -face community engagement processes, they often see the online as a bit of a threat, as something that might replace what they do, which it never should. It should augment. And so Digital First has always been us saying, look, you know, it's not about doing your face-to-face -face and then doing a bit of online. And that was, I think, you know, if I typify the first 14 years of the practice we've seen, it's mm -hmm. been, we've got our face-to-face -face process. This is what we run. This isn't going to change. We might throw up a bit of online to go with it. And what we've been saying is because you can't reach lots of people without online, you should design the process with digital in mind and have a face-to-face -face component of that. You don't do less face-to-face, -face, but it should be designed with digital in mind to get the most useful information out of the most people and maybe get more people to actually attend your face-to-face -face sessions. Now, of course, the last year has brought this to the fore mm -hmm. because people can't gather face-to-face -face anymore and are certainly are going to be reluctant to for some time. And so we're seeing that practice leap forward. Before that, the debate was a little bit frustrating because we kept bashing up against these people who are passionate about engaging, but just love doing it face-to-face -face and, and mm. saw digital as a bit of a threat to that. We talk a lot about the methods of engaging being actually the last thing you should be thinking about. It's the, the principles and the processes first and mm. you know, whether that's online or offline, Actually, it's how can you incorporate those two so that the strengths of the offline, you know, that really rich dialogue, being able to see people and understand their perspectives can be combined with the strengths of online, the, the reach, the increased diversity. That's where the real magic can happen, I think. That's right. And all the best engagement I see does combine them all. You know, the, mm. the, on, the, the digital space publicizes the meetings, encourages people to come to the event, has a pre-conversation that might help set the agenda, continues that face-to-face -face where they can do the real deep dive and thinks about not replicating what they've done online mm. already, but building on that. And then post the events, continues the conversation, maybe in a different way. And, and that ability online to mobilize different tools at different times, to have phases of the mm. engagement can be really valuable. One of the challenges I see 
particularly government organizations having when they start using a platform like this and there is a whole lot of data and you know you mentioned the the third aspect of it being able to listen and have that good reporting one of the challenges i see is then decision makers they're looking for a mandate for something and they want to see a certain percentage or a certain number what advice do you have to people who are starting to use these platforms and they've got lots of data and they want to be able to give a full picture to their decision makers, but also make it easy for their decision makers. Like there's some real tension in there. What advice yeah. do you have for people? What I've always said on this, and, and I'm a bit of a scratch record, but you know, if you're trying to run digital engagement or any sort of engagement as a referendum, you're running into trouble. You know, we've seen people over the years who throw up a poll to talk about an issue and then get the wrong answer from the community and go, oh, no, what are we going to do now? It's kind of bizarre. I mean, good engagement should be about eliciting the ideas from the community, making sure you understand all the different perspectives that are out there. You know, sometimes the person that comes and leaves one discordant comment, that's more valuable than the 30 people saying the same thing you already knew that a bunch of people thought. Mm. We see this all the time. Years ago, we did. Um, it was back when the last financial crisis hit and Kevin Rudd's government made money available to local authorities to spend in their community. And we did two cities ran online engagements about what to do with the money. I think it was Orange had a cluster of people demanding a conservatorium of music and Ashfield, I think it was, which is now, I believe, part of Inner West in Sydney, had a group of people demanding a new water polo arena. Now, in both cases, these were clusters of the community who saw the opportunity to engage online to tell their friends and tell their friends' friends and get a group of people advocating for a particular thing. At no point did either of those cities think, oh, more people want a water polo community than anything else, we'd better build that. I mm. mean, you know, it, it wasn't done as a voting thing. It was done as a way that these people got mobilised, got passionate, hopefully got more involved in the city's affairs. No doubt their desire for that facility was, was noted, but I don't think that ever would have gone to the councillors and they would have felt pressure because yeah. more people said that than anything else. And I think that's always been good engagement. Now, notwithstanding that, there is always the desire to hit a button and get a magic answer. And, mm. and I think that you can deal with that by going through stages of engagement. You know, maybe in the early part of the process, you ask people for their ideas, you ask them to pin the map, whatever it might be. Maybe then you go into a discussion phase where you've got a draft proposal and you want their, their thoughts on that draft proposal. And then finally, maybe you do some sort of survey or polling to to elicit the weight of those opinions. But you've got to make it really clear to the community that your online engagement results are going to go alongside your face-to-face -face engagement results, the opinions of your engineers, your accountants, all those other things that mm. make up the layers of an organization's decision-making. You've got to make that really transparent to the community that, look, this is part of that analysis, but there are these other factors as well, like expert opinion, that we do need to bring into the mix. And I think if the community understands that, then it disincentivizes any attempts to stack the consultation. You know, mm -hmm. it, it takes away all the fears that, oh, two people might vote on the same thing. It, it takes away the fear that they might tell their friends to get involved and turns it into a hope that they might tell their friends mm -hmm. to get involved. And it turns the whole thing more positive. So, you know, I do hope in the future that as we, you know, we've introduced artificial intelligence that gives instant sentiment analysis of comments. It's pretty accurate. And, you know, we do encourage clients, they go through and read and you can change over that analysis if for instance sarcasm doesn't get dealt with well by ai yeah. 
And so, you know, there is still the need to read through it, but it does give the clients the ability to see quite quickly where sentiment lies on an issue, particularly because you can also sort through based on issues that are raised. So you can kind of do a sort on, okay, who's who's talked about the swimming pool? And then you can run the sentiment on that sample to see whether they're positively or negatively disposed. So in the future, you'll see a lot more of that stuff being introduced that will get us closer and closer to mm. be able to get very very accurate and very condensed analysis of an issue. But I, I think that there'll always be an importance that everybody's input gets read by somebody, gets considered, gets recorded and gets retained. Mm. Because when we go to an organisation with with our opinion, we, we kind of deserve to be heard as an individual, not to mm. be algorithmed out of it. And, and I, I do think that it's important to retain that. So in what we're doing, we're, we're working hard to make sure we continue, you know, to that we build stuff to make it much easier to analyze, but that mm. it's, you know, we predicate on the idea that, that each contribution will be given some, some value. And that comes back to the basic human need to want to be heard and understood. And I guess one of the other sort of things that I've been wondering about with digital engagement is what about those communities who are not digitally savvy or their first language is something other than English or, what, or whatever the main language of a place might be. What have you been noticing and learning about how to involve people in those communities through digital tools? Yeah, gosh, there's a number of answers. We're definitely getting better on the language front. Even something really simple like sticking Google Translate on a site three years ago, the translations were a joke. Now they're better and they're getting better still. We've already done multi-language consultations and you can build multiple languages into our sites, but we're working on ways we can make that better and easier and more accessible for the community. So I'm very confident in the next year or so um, we'll be doing that much better. It still does rely on the government organization being able to take inputs in multiple languages. And that that is always going to be a barrier and a challenge and an expense for our clients. So we're getting better at that one. But in terms of the inclusivity of, of a digital approach, I think we've long passed the point where there are large slabs of society not online. Most people are online in all age groups and the people who would break it down by age group are kind of missing the point that, you know, the parents who were all over the early days of Facebook are now grandparents and it's moving on up and, and mm. people are online. And there's a lot we can do with accessibility rules to make online easier for anyone suffering, you know, anyone with disability or anyone who's just my age and can't see without glasses on. You can see I'm doing the vanity thing here and squinting at the screen instead of wearing <laughs> my glasses. But so, you know, there's a there's a lot we do. And those those accessibilities, those WCAC guidelines, they are really critical. And I think in the past, our industry has maybe been been guilty of neglecting those. They always appear as a line in an RFP, but I rarely see active auditing. And, you know, I've always encouraged mm -hmm. people to ask any provider for any sort of software to see their accessibility audits. And those should be no more than three to six months old. And they should always find problems because that's the idea. You know, you find the issues, you fix the issues, you audit again, and you keep going. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's taken seriously enough. I think it needs to be. And then there are those groups that are harder to reach. So we've recently introduced SMS technology into our software, mm -hmm. which reaches a lot more people. And now that's not always about people not having access. Sometimes it's about people being busy or, or whatever. SMS gets our attention more quickly. Yeah. And so the integration of SMS, when we've done some work with um, Yankalilla in South Australia, where people have been texting in ideas, you know, to an ideas board and things like that. So we'll be building a lot more of that. And then the final answer, 
is there are some people who just don't want to engage online and you've got to go and find them. You know, this isn't a silver bullet and, and people who don't go online because they're worried it doesn't reach the whole community are kind of letting the, the perfect be the enemy of getting better yeah. because right now, mostly we're, we're engaging just about nobody if we're not online. When we're online, we're engaging a lot more people, but not mm-hmm. everybody. And there are some groups, you know, I talked earlier about that demographic analysis, our PRN that allows you mm-hmm. to work out who you're talking to and who you're not. Some of them, you've got to go out and get them. You know, I used mm-hmm. to chair a housing authority in the Hunter region and we ran online engagement. It didn't really work with the tenants, but, you know, pulling up a barbecue and doing some sausages outside the building, we'd be sure to get them out to talk to you. And, and so yeah. there are groups that you want to engage in in all sorts of different ways. And sometimes yeah, you've got to identify we haven't got enough of this particular group and go and do some outreach and mm. talk to them. Young people are always hard. You know, we've had some wonderful innovation of people trying to get young people involved. And it normally I mean, it's hard to knock everything into one kind of typical analogy, but normally it requires a bit of face-to-face to get things kicked off, you know. Mm. Saw some wonderful work in Victoria where they got young people in a skate park to graffiti on a, a couch. I, I've no idea why a couch, the graffiti couch. <laughs> and then they kind of gave them a card with a URL and they went back and, and logged in and found their comment that had been transcribed and then mm. joined in and talked to each other. And, you know, so there's a lot that can be done by mixing up your methods and, and mm. you can you can get much more inclusive coverage of the community that way some fantastic ideas in there matt that's really helpful one other thing i'd love to talk with you about is the future of digital engagement so you wrote an article which caught my attention i don't know nine months to a year ago now where you were reflecting on the past 14 years and then what you see as some of the big developments for the future and there's probably two main things i'd love to pick out of that one was you talk about how the platforms at the moment are quite project focused so you know council will put up hey we're thinking about changing our main street what are your ideas and it's sort of based on that uh, that's the container as the project and it can be a two-way conversation for the most part so you know i'm as a citizen and sharing sharing ideas and talking with the institution less than i am talking and sharing ideas with my fellow citizens so you talked about the future having more of a shift to that multi-dimensional engagement. Can you talk to us more about what you see as the potential there? Yeah, look, and I, I think a lot of that potential comes down to our ability to handle large amounts of data. You know, traditionally, we collect data on a project basis, we analyze it on a project basis, the project ends, the next project starts. And I think that limits us and that actually sometimes you can collect data from the community because there are passionate people out there who want to talk about place and need and all of those things. And the, the thing that's been holding us back is that we can't honor that information enough so that it, it surfaces in the right place at the right time. Mm. So there's a lot of work we need to do on the analysis of data so that we can collect information on an ongoing basis and know that it can be surfaced at the right time and we're not wasting anybody's time and failing to listen. So I think that's a critical challenge in the coming years. My view is that in the first you know, 10, 14 years of this business, we've, we've built something that shows people how to engage a lot more people, but there's still a lot of people missing. And so mm-hmm. the, you know, the thing that's going to keep me um, engaged in this and, and challenged in this for the next five to 10 years is how do we engage everyone? How do we literally make it so the whole community feels valued, engaged and involved in government? 
And it's a big challenge. And I think it starts at the data analysis, because right now, if we you know, got everybody involved at some level, we'd be overwhelmed with the data, we'd yeah. never be able to analyze it, and we'd be layering up costs. And so I probably wondered a little bit from your question, but I, I think that that just sits at the heart of it. We've got to find ways to honor the information that's coming in, but to be able to analyze it in a way so that if you succeed in your engagement, you know, I sometimes hear clients say, oh, you know, if I put this out there and I get 10,000 comments, I've got no resources to analyze the comments. Mm. That sort of breaks my heart a bit. You know, that that's effectively saying that success would be defeat. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so the wonderful thing is, of course, that technology has advanced a long way. And, and you know, I've, I've mentioned a few times AI, and that's just one aspect of what can be done now. But we can definitely start finding those ways to make that that analysis of data really effective setting the context for engagement before you start it, understanding who you need to reach, understanding who you have reached, understanding their sentiment, understanding the key issues they've risen. Um, you know, all of those things can fit together. And then once we can do all of that really easily, we don't have to be afraid of the volume and, and getting mm. more volume. We, we can think laterally about that and find ways to reach people and make it easy to, to input on an ongoing basis. Mm. And the other thing you talked about and you sort of touch on it there is people feeling a little bit like they own the platform themselves so mm. and they want to return and they can see how their contributions are being used what do you see as the potential future there around that sense of ownership of a platform that is you know funded by my local council it's an interesting angle and there's there's arguments either way you know you'll be aware of Nextdoor who are out there you know running a locally based social media platform and and they've very much gone down that I mean although their business model of course is selling all the data to the private sector and they boast they can you know zoom in on the individual household which feels a little bit sinister but but nonetheless they've built this local social network that the community owns to the extent that if you're not from a neighborhood you can't be in a neighborhood the equivalent here in New Zealand is neighborly for the Kiwis yeah. listening in. Yep. Yeah. So, and I think it was Nabo here in Australia, but next door bought them. So there is that model, but I don't think it's very good for engagement because the, the barriers that get put up between groups, it limits the extent to which government can interact in there. There is an audience there, but also you, you do have this issue of telling your community that to be heard by you, they've got to sell their private details to a commercial organization. And I always mm. have a problem with that. You know, we've gone out of our way over the years. We sign over all the data. All the ownership of that's with our clients, not with ourselves. Mm. We don't do anything commercial with it. And I think that's that's important. And I think most of our colleagues in the industry do the same thing. Mm. The idea of the community feeling they own the space. I mean, I'd love us to get there. We do kind of have a project on our development books of building something along those lines. But we've got to work out how it fits at the moment. Right now, the analysis piece isn't at the point where our clients can open the gates to unlimited amounts of data and sift through it quite happily it could become a little overwhelming and i've also always felt that a key part of the listening contract the government has with the community is that we're listening to so we we talk to you about the issue when we're ready to listen on the issue so we're never wasting your time mm -hmm. and i'm a little concerned that turning government sites into a social network mm -hmm. would do a disservice to the extent to which the community felt they were listened to because their expectation would be you know if i'm coming to 
you know, you'll say Wellington or whatever it might be, and putting something on a community page where the community are chatting to each other. I presumably, because I'm in the city site, Phil, I'm being listened to. Phil, I'm going to get a city response. And that, that puts a big burden on the city. So there's some merit in this stuff, but it, it, it does need to be treated with a little bit of care. And then the other problem you have with any fledgling social network is, you know, the vast majority of us, you know, I was talking about engage everybody. So let's take the 90% of people who, you know, don't have much to do with government at all. They're, they're actually not going to come and run their social network on the city of Wellington social network page. I don't think, I think they're going to no. be on Facebook or wherever else they are. And, and, and so you're kind of entering a really competitive space for people's time and probably you end up just getting that slice you're already talking to. I think I referenced this in the article you're talking about as a while ago since I've written it and it's something that I, I think we need to go to. I would like us to be able to routinely record conversations about issues that the city's not ready to talk about and find a way mm. that data can be properly treated and called on to set the scene at the start of an engagement or flag to a city when they need to do that as a business we'll go there eventually but we've recognized that before we go there we probably need to to be able to respect the data that comes in but you know there, there's definitely something in it but the the other thing i'd say is that if we do want to reach a much broader audience having a small slice of the community chatting more on a website probably isn't the way to do it we probably mm. need to find ways within the workings of government or within the interactions government have with the community to make it easier and more attractive to people to give points of information along the way so that more people get involved, more people can see it's worth being involved. We do this really badly as an industry as a whole, telling that story about, you know, the, the city was going to do this or the city was thinking yeah. about this and this is the information that came in and this is how we changed direction. Now, I know because I work with these people that there are tons of those stories out there. Some of them yeah. are quite remarkable, but people never feel safe telling them. And I think yeah. we've got to tell those to our community, you know, this person, you probably wouldn't name them, but you might describe them, you know, gave us this little piece of information that took them one minute and this is how it profoundly changed what we do as a city. And once the community sees that sort of stuff, um, then they'll think it's more worthwhile and we'll get far more from far more of them. And as long as we can cope with the analysis, then you're getting to a point where we can be confident that we are actually hearing from the community. And I like in there you say this particular person shared this particular nugget of wisdom because I think often the story that government says is, oh, we heard from the community. And actually to have some details to it, some, some specifics to it can really add a little bit more flesh to that picture. I think so. I don't want to denigrate what's being done now, you know, and what was done before online. You know, what, mm -hmm. what we're doing is, I think you could characterize it as we're giving everyone the opportunity to participate. And with digital, we've, we've made that opportunity easier to attain. And I, I think that's been an important step, but kind of hungry to get to the point where everyone does participate. And I, I think anyone involved in our industry probably, you know, would sign up to that. It's everyone will have different ideas of how we might achieve it. And I'd, you know, I'd love to see us all focusing on that. I, I mentioned very early in this discussion, you know, what I see is a bit of a lack of innovation in the space and we're, we're culpable for that. We spent four years expanding into international markets with our focus there rather than on product. Now we've done that and they're now yielding and, and we can pour effort into product. Mm. And, and we're really excited about being able to do that. But I, I want to see more innovation. You know, there's there's been very little. If you look at what we, we were doing eight years ago and look at what we're doing now, it hasn't changed a huge amount. And I think mm. it's time that we picked it up and moved it forward. And Australia and New Zealand is a, is a wonderful, you know, we've got a really strong GovTech sector. We've got a really strong record of innovation in this space. 
you know, I've been in processes to win business in the US and, you know, the, the sort of, of the top three shortlisted firms, two of them will be out of our region, you know, and it's, <laughs> uh, it's kind of remarkable how we've picked this up. Mm. And I think we stand well poised to sort of lead a new phase of innovation in the next five years. Well, Matt, I think that's a fantastic place to wrap up our conversation to see and hear your excitement about what might be next. And, you know, when I reflect on it, we're just taking baby steps and figuring out what is possible with digital engagement. It's been uh, 14 years. That's not very long in the scheme of humanity. So yeah, it's going to be exciting to see where this can go. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. What did you learn from the show? What should we have talked about? Who else should I interview? I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz slash podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Nga mihi mo te whakarongo.